Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans again. Romans chapter 3. And we are, every time I see that grasping the gospel, I think about the fact that really we need to be grasped by the gospel. But I think as we come to understand it better, it will have a greater grip on our lives. And uh, we can be more effective in our Christian lives in service uh, for the Lord. Uh, this evening, we're going to be talking about God's righteous justification of sinners, Romans 3.21 through 4.25. Hello. There we go. Romans 3, and we'll read, be reading Romans 3.21 through 23 um, to introduce the message this evening. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Dear Father, we pray this evening that you would renew in our spirits and our hearts an appreciation for the wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel, the good news, that you freely declare righteous those who are not righteous. You deal with us as though we were righteous and because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that this, uh, this truth, which perhaps because of uh, our own neglect or even perhaps because of familiarity has become something that we take for granted, I pray that you would renew in our hearts again the sense of awe and wonder that you should become our friend and make us friends of you, though we were your enemies. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what you have for us. Cause us to absorb this and be transformed anew by this. And Lord, give us a renewed desire and heart to make this known to others who are in such desperate need, trying without any success to please you by what they do. I pray now that you would fill us with your Spirit this evening. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I was uh, first saved, I think back now, it was uh, in 1984. I remember it very clearly. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, a Friday uh, afternoon, a Friday lunchtime in August. I was working a job. In, I was in law school, and I was working a job for the summer. And I remember that at the culmination of a lot of things God had been doing in my life, I look back and realize now that he had been working on me for a long time. And... Uh, I came to the realization uh, through the testimony of others as well as through what I had already known about the gospel from my upbringing that I really just needed to trust Christ. It was just really so simple. And when God opens your eyes, it just is very simple. I've heard it said that believing the gospel is not, is not complicated. <laughs> the gospel is not complicated. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard for us because we don't want that kind of a gospel. We want a gospel that leaves some shred of of our own um, self-respect and pride intact. And we have to admit that we are, can do nothing to please the Lord apart from his work uh, through Jesus Christ. And, uh, and yet, 
I remember when, when it came to the point of realizing the truth of the gospel, it was like the light came on, and I knew I just needed to trust Christ. And so I was there, I was eating lunch, uh, and um, I was going to say I was by myself. Well, the room had other people in it, and the Holy Spirit was there with me. But I didn't have anyone to lead me through a prayer, so my sinner's prayer was, God, please save me. <laughs> okay. Now, I knew the gospel. I knew that Jesus came and died on the cross, I, I, you know, and I knew I was a sinner, although I certainly didn't have an appreciation of what kind of a sinner I was like I have now about what kind of a sinner I am. And I'm sure the longer I go in my life, the more I realize what a sinner I am. But, but it, was, it was powerful in that, in that the moment I asked God to save me, it was like the experience of Pilgrim when he gets to the cross and the pack which had been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, fell off his back. And I don't know if you've had this experience of having carried a load for a long time, having been on your feet for a long time, having walked a long distance, having, um, having carried a, a large load for a long period of time, and you don't realize how heavy it is until when? Until you put it down. <laughs> when you put it down, it's like, oh, that was so heavy. And I remember the relief that I had and the joy that I had. And this should not be something that happens, I mean, it it happens at a point in time, but it should be an experience that we relive over and over again when we come to the realization anew that I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ because of his grace, and all I had to do and all I have to do is accept that and, and rejoice in that. And it's the work that God does, and we... We are justified, we have been justified by faith, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Sadly, uh, there is a common human tendency to think we must earn our salvation. And I think that you understand this, right? Why do people, re- <laughs> you want to give someone a free gift, right? And, and you tell them about the gospel and they resist it. <laughs> and it's like, don't you get it? I'm trying to give you a free gift. They're like, well, what's the catch? <laughs> Right? What's the catch? Everybody wants something from you, right? So someone comes and says, I've got something, I want to give it to you, right? I want to give something away. And unless it's someone we know or someone we trust or someone we love, we don't believe them, do we? And people don't believe God when God tells them, I want to give you salvation as a free gift. There is, a, there, there is something down in the human soul, the human pride that says, I think I must, I need to earn my salvation, at least in part. Now, I'm willing to let God help me, but I do want to earn it, at least in part. But what we learn in this text is that God, God demonstrates, and, and Paul logically lays it out, and he just, he just makes the case that the only way of salvation is justification by faith without works, without our good deeds. So as we look at this text then in, in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, we will see Paul making this uh, demonstration. Now, where are we in the outline of Romans? If you have your outline with you, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, remember, we've got some the main points. We've had the introduction. And we are in part number two, main point number two. The gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. 117 through, through 425. The gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. And then last time we saw the first part of this. We, we, in a sense, broke this message into two parts. 
the, 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 last week was the bad news, right? The gospel reveals God's righteous judgment against sin. And what we saw was that God demonstrates, Paul demonstrates that everyone is unrighteous, everyone is under condemnation. And that um, it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is or what your religion is, in yourself, we all stand under the condemnation of God. And then, uh, so we are in the courtroom and we stand condemned. And the conclusion of message three, the message of last week, was, I think, found in Romans 3.20, where Paul concludes, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, I believe here that he is, although he's talking specifically here about the, the revealed word of God, he makes it plain in his discussion in chapter, particularly in chapter 2, that the Gentiles have a kind of law that God has implanted in them. They don't have the written law. They didn't have the written law that was given to Israel. But they have a law implanted in them which is reflected in their conscience. And the fact is that people believe in a right and wrong and they act as though there's a right and wrong. And they will either excuse people or they will accuse people based upon their understanding of what's right and wrong. And, and I think that um, something just to keep in mind, perhaps, is when, someone is when someone is trying to argue about whether or not they're a sinner, I think it's probably fair to say that if they are being honest, you can ask them this question, don't you do things that you know are wrong? You know, they want to argue about whether this thing is wrong or that thing is wrong. But, but, but I don't know of anybody who's honest who will say, I've never done anything that I knew was wrong. The point being, we're all under law in the sense of moral obligation to God, and that moral obligation, whether it is communicated to us through conscience or whether it's communicated through the Word of God in the Old Testament, it condemns us. So the law, by the law, is the knowledge of sin. Therefore, law cannot justify you any more than the speed limit sign can keep you from getting a ticket if you're speeding. Right? You're going down the road and you get pulled over and the blue lights are going and you say, well, officer, I was only going 85. Right? And he says, well, the sign says 65. <laughs> the sign cannot exculpate you if you are disobeying what it says. And so the point is that the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, that's the conclusion from the last, the last session. And so right after that, we find the beginning now of the second part of the message, which is the gospel reveals God's righteous justification of sinners. The gospel reveals God's righteous judgment against sin, but it also shows us his righteous justification of sinners. Verse 21 says, but now, right? But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And it, Martin Luther's testimony is that he just wrestled mightily with this phrase, the righteousness of God, because he had been taught his whole life, he had been taught that God is righteous and therefore righteously judges sin, which is true. But here, that's not the righteousness that's being discussed. This righteousness is the righteousness that God will give you, or better stated, will put on your account. It's the righteousness that you can have with God. It is a righteous standing with God. And when that light came on, it, was the, it changed Luther and it changed really the whole Western world, you think of it. The effects of that realization. Not just in his life, of course, but in the lives of many, many other people. 
And so the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. The gospel tells me how I can be right with God. Now notice, it is, wit it is apart from the law, it is witnessed by the, God, by the law and the prophets, and is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about what that verse is saying. Let's break it down a little bit. The gospel, first of all, is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's being discussed. Secondly, this righteousness comes apart from the law, or apart from law, which is apart from our performance. <laughs> our righteous standing with God does not depend on how righteously we do things for God. It never has, and it never will. My standing with God is always based on the merits of Jesus Christ. It's not even based on uh, the good things that I do after I'm saved. God helping me. It is always based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the righteousness comes apart from law, apart from our performance. Also, this righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, that's interesting. When he says the law and the prophets, he means the Old Testament. In other words, his point is that, that there was this idea that, that, that people had that the law, that God gave the law at Mount Sinai, for example, so that if you kept it, you could be right with God. And so the idea is what the Bible commands is how you get right with God. And Paul is saying, if you look at the whole testimony of what God has revealed, that's not what's going on. And he's going to demonstrate that, especially in chapter 4. He's going to show in chapter 4 that that was never God's intention, to give us rules whereby we could be made righteous in his sight. That was never the point. Rather, he, he witnesses through the law and the prophets... The Bible gives us testimony that salvation is by grace through faith, and Paul is going to prove that in this part of the uh, book. Now, notice, uh, I, I want to make a point here. Go back here for a second. The law is, the righteousness of God that we're talking about is witnessed by the law and the prophets, and that harkens back to what Paul says in the very first verse of this book. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, okay? The theme of the book is the gospel of God, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, so one point Paul's going to make is this isn't a new thing. This was always what God said he was going to do. If you thoroughly understand, if you correctly understand his revelation in the Old Testament, you will find that he has prophesied this before, and Paul is going to show us some of that in this, in this section of the book. So the first main point we want to see uh, this evening... Uh, is that, just, as we've said, justification by faith, it's, it's how we can be right with God. Justification by faith, first of all, vindicates the character of God. See, it, there's something about human, human nature that says, I don't like this gospel. It, it doesn't seem right. It seems like people are getting off scot-free. It seems like it's not right or fair. It seems to violate our sense of justice. But the thing we have to understand is, and Paul makes it very clear, is that this is the gospel that vindicates the character of God. It doesn't vindicate my character. It vindicates his character. It's a gospel that glorifies God. Now, how does it vindicate his character? Well, well that's in the first, that's in the section, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 through 31. Now, I just want to focus here. We can't go through all of the verses, but I want to focus here on part of Romans chapter 3, verse 22. He is saying that the righteousness of God is even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So the righteousness of God equals being justified freely 
without cost by his grace. Look at verse 24 just quickly. Chapter 3, verse 24. He said, being justified freely, or that is, without any cost by his grace. So when we say salvation is a free gift, we're not making it up. Paul says explicitly that salvation is a free gift. And you know when someone wants to give you a gift, it's insulting to try to pay for it. Right? Someone comes along and says, I would like to give you a, a, I don't know what kind of car would you like me to say. I would like to give you a Lamborghini for some of you younger folks here. Right? I would like to give you a Rolls Royce for some of your other folks here. I'd like to give you a Tesla. And you're like, cool, but I don't take charity. I'll give you a buck. Folks, that's insulting, okay? That's just flat insulting because it's denying the, the grace uh, and, and the kindness of the person and preserving your, the, the myth or the pretense of your, own, uh, of your own independence while in reality you're never paying for the gift, right? What, what, what could you pay for your salvation? What's it worth, right, to be right with God forever? How could we possibly pay for that. So the righteousness of God in verse 22 equals being justified freely, that is without cost, in verse 24. Also, to justify, and this is very important, what does it mean, what does the word to justify mean? Well, consistently, and this is a vital point in arguing with anyone who wants to deny the, the idea of salvation by grace through faith, and that is that to justify, the word to justify consistently in the Old and New Testaments means to declare righteous. That's extremely important. There are folks that's, that believe that what you have to do is you get God to gradually make you righteous, and once he makes you righteous, then you're considered righteous in his sight because you are already righteous. But that's the cart before the horse. God declares us righteous on the merits of Jesus Christ before he ever makes us righteous. He will eventually make us righteous, by the way. That's what glorification is all about. It's being made exactly like Jesus, right? But to justify means to declare righteous. This is called forensic justification. Forensic justification. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I was in forensics. Anybody else here do forensics? That's basically learning how to talk a lot, right? <laughs> and how to talk in a way that's effective and persuasive, right? And it comes from the idea from the word, it's related to the word for forum, and it's the language of the courtroom, right? It's the language of the courtroom or of the debate. Now, this will give you some examples. I have the verses listed here in your notes. Deuteronomy 25, 1, if there's a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they, they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. See, here, it doesn't mean they made the righteous person righteous. Now, it's not, when it says righteous, it's talking about the person who's in the right. It's right, who, who, who had the better legal case, right? I mean, you might be the nicest person in the world, and you come to church, and you give, and you're very generous, and you're nice to animals, right? And then you, you pull out of the parking lot, and you cut in front of somebody who happens to be, you know, the worst person in the world. And when you go to traffic court, he is gonna, you're gonna, he's going to be justified and you're going to be condemned because he was righteous and you were wicked when it comes to the traffic laws. The point simply is that you have to look at a legal standard and then, and then decide who is declared by the court to be righteous. So you justify the one in the right. That is, you declare him to be in the right. 
Okay, 2 Samuel 15, 4. This is a very interesting passage, too. This is Absalom, and he's subverting the rule of David by standing in the gate there, standing in the court, and persuading people that he would give them better legal decisions than his father will. And so, moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice, or I would justify him says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I would, I would make sure he had a decision in his favor. And how about Romans 3, verses 3 through 4? Now this is quoting Psalm 51, 4. This is the Psalm, David's penitential psalm. And so Paul is quoting Psalm 51. And so Paul says this, for what if some did not believe? He's talking about the, the, the Jewish people who did not believe, the Israelites who did not believe, and he is saying that that does not in any way diminish the goodness of God in giving him the law. And he said, for what if some did not believe, would their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And he says, certainly not. May it never be. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This is David talking to God. <laughs> now, you can't make God either righteous or unrighteous. But you can declare him. You can agree that he is righteous. And we see the same thing in Luke chapter 7, verse 29. It says, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. Now, how can you justify God? Well, they had been baptized with the baptism of John. Remember, what kind of baptism was the baptism of John? Remember what it was for? It was a demonstration of repentance. So when I repent, what am I saying to God? I'm saying, I'm wrong and you are right. I am declaring God to be righteous. I don't make him righteous. God is righteous. But I am acknowledging that fact. And then Luke 19, 14, I have another verse, Luke 18, 5, which uses a related word, but it's not the identical word. So, so Luke 19, 14 says, I tell you, this man, this is, the, this is the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the tax collector basically said, Said, said to the Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee said, I thank you that you've helped me to be a good person. Thank you for helping me be a good person. And so what did Jesus say? I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house, what? Justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I could multiply example after example to show that consistently throughout the Old and New Testaments, this term to justify means to declare righteous. It is a declaration of righteousness. So we've seen already here that, that we see, first of all, that justification by faith, point A here, justification by faith reveals God's expansive mercy. Justification by faith reveals God's expansive mercy. That's chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. And, and again, instead of reading all of it, just note some of the language here. In 22b, it says, this is to all and upon all who believe. And that's Paul's, one of Paul's major points. Everybody gets in on this, right? The Jew gets it. The Gentile gets it, right? Everyone can have this kind of righteousness. It's upon all. So it's expansive. Notice in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's very interesting. We often quote that verse to, to show people, look, everyone's a sinner because it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But the context of that verse is actually saying, that's why God, <laughs> that's why God can have mercy on all because everybody, what? Needs it. It makes perfect sense that he would have mercy on all because everyone needs his mercy. 
And then it says being justified freely by his grace. And remember we mentioned that freely means without cost. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at the depth of the mercy of God. He purchased us out of the slave market of sin. He redeemed us. We're looking at the book of, pastors going through the book of Ruth in the morning. And the fact that that Boaz is a redeemer and he redeems Naomi uh, from her poverty and from not having uh, uh, any descendants. And he redeems Ruth. And, and it's just a wonderful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the expansive mercy of God, and the gospel reveals that. But not only does it uh, reveal the expansive mercy of God, it also vindicates God's absolute justice. And this is the thing. People will be willing to accept that God will be merciful, but they don't want to accept that he's just. But there's a real problem with that, because if God is not just, he doesn't need to be merciful, <laughs> right? Think of it for a second. If, if God overlooks sin, if God doesn't care about sin, if God is sort of a cosmic Santa Claus who's just kind of nodding and sitting in his rocking chair and not really caring very much what we do, then I don't need forgiveness, do I? I don't need his mercy. God's mercy and God's justice are, are inseparably linked. Without his justice, his mercy makes no sense. It's not necessary. So then you have verses... 25 and 26 there. Now, I just want us to, to see uh, some of the things that are going on there so you can get a sense as you're reading it of how it works. He says, to demonstrate at the present time, that is, he, he's saying that he had set forth Jesus Christ uh, as a propitiation or to satisfy the wrath of God. And one reason he did that was to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. And in what way? That he might be both what? Just and and the justifier. Notice that Paul cares very much about God being both just and the justifier. Right. How can you get just, how can a just judge declare you innocent if you're guilty? Right. That's the reason why Christ died on the cross. And Paul's going to point out in chapter 6 that that requires us to have a union with Christ. We're not there yet. Because people say, well, how can one person die for the sin of another person? Well, he can if they're united legally. Okay? And so the point is that we are united with Christ. You can't be saved if you're not united to Christ. Why? Because then his, his, his righteousness doesn't apply to you. Right? And so, and so the, but the point of the gospel is that God is both just or righteous and then he declares sinners to be righteous. So he both saves us and vindicates his own justice. The third thing, the third thing that justification by faith does is it guarantees, God, guarantees God's exclusive glory. Okay, and that's verses 27 through 30. So you can glance at those and we'll just look at a few, a few uh, excerpts from those, okay? Verse 27 says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Notice, we don't get to brag, do we? We have nothing to boast about. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody and you've told them about the gospel and you've talked about being saved and even maybe said that you, you're thankful that you know you're going to heaven and they might say something like, well, you must think you're pretty good. Which means they have totally missed it, right? That's a thorough indication that they don't know what you're talking about. Because if they understood it, they would not say that. Because the gospel excludes boasting. 
by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith or the principle or rule of faith. Faith means that I don't get any credit. Why? Because I am relying on God solely. I didn't buy the Mercedes, right? (laughs) It was given to me as a free gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It's a free gift. Then in verse 29, he says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So now Paul is reiterating the fact that both groups, whether you're under just the law of conscience or whether you are under the written law, the law of Moses, both groups need salvation because both groups are condemned. And it is one God who justifies both of them, right? Now you say, well, what does that have to do with the glory of God? It's in this phrase, one God, one God. I want us to think about that for just a moment. Go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, it is, he is, uh, it, that assumes, right, that makes the point that there is no other God. But there's more to it than just God is numerically one, that there is one God. The idea is God is the only God. He is therefore the only one in his class and the only one who deserves worship and glory. See, the Lord is one. And, and if you were living in that day and you said the Lord is one, that means you can't worship Baal and worship Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh is one. He is the only God. He is, he is deserving of our exclusive worship. And so that's why you get the very next phrase. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, right? He is one. And we see the glory of, of the, the revelation of the oneness of God in Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Now there are a couple of important points here. The Lord is one. That's what everybody's proclaiming. But he is king over the whole earth. <laughs> so there is one Lord ruling over the whole earth. He is glorified as the one true God throughout the whole world. That's when Christ comes back. Right? And his name, one. what's the idea of the name? It could either be referring to his reputation or his glory so that there is one name that is exalted above every name. We know that there, there is none other name under heaven given whereby we, want, we must be saved. God will be exalted in that day. But also the idea of the name of God. Remember, people called on the name of the Lord. And what does that mean? To call upon the name of the Lord says, Lord, I acknowledge that you're God and you're the only one that can help me. You're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that I should serve. So calling on the name of the Lord, the implication is everybody will be worshiping the one God. And God is glorified. So when we, when we go back and see... Since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, that glorifies God, right? One God glorified because he is the savior of the whole world. So justification by faith vindicates the character of God. And that's one reason the gospel is so important. You cannot, you cannot cheapen or change or dilute the gospel without denigrating the glory of God. Right? The gospel is inseparably bound up with the glory of God. The second point is that we see in this passage is that justification by faith vindicates the promises of God. And that's mainly in chapter 4. I've included the last verse in chapter uh, 3 
because it declares, hang on, let me back up. It, it declares that we do not make void the law through faith. We establish the law. And Paul is going to go on to show through chapter 4 that the Old Testament revelation is established by the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And that's his whole point in dealing with Abraham. So let's look at this here. There is a possible objection to what Paul has been teaching about the gospel. And, and, and Paul doesn't mention this object, objection specifically. But, but given the context and given other things he says, I think this is a, a sort of a, a fair way of putting what some people might have objected to Paul's presentation of the gospel. And that is justification by faith is an attack on the Pentateuch, which is the entire system founded and the entire system founded upon it. The foundation of the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. And people were saying, look, you're attacking the law of God, which is attacking the foundation of all revelation. And so here's Paul's response, or what his response would be, or the response I am, I am extracting from what he says in chapter 4. That is Paul's response. On the contrary, on the contrary, the fundamental principle of the Old Testament was not law-keeping, but promise. And justification by faith establishes the promise. And he's going to go on and demonstrate that. Justification by faith vindicates the promises of God. First we see that Abraham and all his spiritual children are justified by faith instead of by works. So he goes back to Abraham. right? Because people said, you know, God chose Abraham and God gave Abraham promises. And those promises went to Isaac, they went to Jacob, and they went to the nation of Israel. And that's the foundation of all the promises in the Old Testament. And Paul says, you are right. That's, those are foundational promises, but Abraham and all his spiritual children are justified by faith instead of by works. That's verses 1 through 8. Now, I want to just kind of give you a little graphic to show you a little bit about how Paul is making his argument. You start with Abraham, okay? And then, of course, Abraham then, and you have the patriarchs. And remember, God said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. So the promise of the land and those other promises are coming through this physical descendants or these physical seed. And then the patriarchs, that is Isaac and Jacob, then, uh, and then the patriarchs and the fathers until you get to uh, the Exodus, right? They all have these promises. And then you get to the nation of Israel, which is founded at Mount Sinai when, with the giving of the law, right? The giving of the Mosaic law is given at Mount Sinai. Now, here's Paul's point. He quotes Genesis 15, 5 through 6, where God promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants like the stars of the heavens, and it says, Abraham, what? Believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Okay, so Abraham was justified by faith before the law of Moses. <laughs> Abraham couldn't have been justified by the law because the law hadn't been given yet. Abraham was justified by believing God. So that's Paul's first point. It's before the law. The second point, he, he then goes on and quotes David from Psalm 32. David said, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. And so Paul is saying, look, David was justified by faith under the law. So even after the law came, you're still justified by faith. So before the law, you're justified by faith. Even under the law, you're justified by faith. So that's, that's his first point in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. 
What's his second point? Well, justification by faith guarantees, I'm sorry, that God's promise, pardon the typo, that God's promise will provide salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's verses 9 through 16. God's, the, the principle of justification by faith guarantees that God's promise will, be, will, be, will provide salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, how does he make that argument? Well, let's go back to our chart here. His point is that when Abraham, he goes on to say that when Abraham was said to be justified, he was a Gentile. <laughs> he hadn't been circumcised yet. Circumcision comes in chapter 17. So he wasn't circumcised and then justified. He was justified and then later he's circumcised. And the point is, Paul is saying, look, circumcision didn't justify Abraham, so it won't justify any of you. Right? Circumcision was the sign and the seal that God gave to Abraham and his descendants that you are justified by faith. It was a symbol of justification by faith. Okay? Because it was first. So Abraham was justified while he was still a Gentile. First point. Second point. The promise to Abraham was that he would be a father of many nations. <laughs> See, that's his point. Your descendants will be as the stars of the heavens and you shall be a father of many nations. Well, if, if salvation then comes through the law or comes through the nation, only comes through those who are under the law, then Abraham can't be the spiritual father of many nations. He can only be the spiritual father of what? One nation. But the promise was that he would be a father of many nations. So how can that promise be fulfilled? That's the point Paul's making. So Abraham, right, and the promise comes to Abraham and then to the patriarchs and then to Israel. The law comes in. But Paul makes it clear that the law did not affect the promise. The law revealed sin, but it didn't affect the promise. Then, of course, Christ is promised, and Christ comes from Israel, and Christ dies on the cross, and he rises again. And through that, many nations are justified. So this is how God fulfills his promise. Abraham is the spiritual father of believing Jews and Gentiles, fulfilling God's promise. Now, that's a pretty involved argument. But it's a necessary argument because Paul is being accused of going against the Old Testament. And he says, no, if you understand what is being revealed in the law, you would understand that salvation by grace through faith is the only way, is the only way uh, to fulfill the promises of God. Finally, the faith of Abraham exemplifies the type of faith that justifies those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now that's verses 18 through 25. And I don't have a, a lot of reference to that here. You just have to kind of look at it. But what Paul is doing there is he's basically saying, look, look at the, the, the tremendous blessing that Abraham's faith was. Abraham, he, he was virtually dead. He was as good as dead. He was 90 years old. Not to mention the deadness of Sarah's womb. But when God made him a promise, what did he do? He believed it. And he, therefore, he, and he did not waver, and he gave glory to God. His point is that, look, this kind of faith, true saving faith, gives glory to God. Because you take God at his word. Now, this is really important, and I've got a reference in there, uh, which we won't look at, but I've got a reference in there. You can look it up later to John 8, 39, where Jesus says to the, to the, to the crowds, if you were of your father Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham meaning that they were living contrary to the way of being real spiritual descendants of Abraham. And then James goes on and says how, how Abraham was vindicated later in life as God's friend by sacrificing Isaac. The point we want to make is that you are not declared righteous based upon your good works. 
But when you are saved and justified and declared righteous, that begins a process in your life which will result in good works. Right? It's a root and fruit problem. The root is our salvation uh, in, through justification uh, and you know, in Jesus Christ by his mercy and through regeneration. And then that then leads us to live a certain kind of a life. Not a perfect life, certainly, but a life that bears fruit. So there's no contradiction. But the, but the point here is that that kind of life that kind of life is one that gives glory, is one that gives glory to God. And that's important because for years I had creedal faith. Creedal faith is you believe the creed. You believe that it is so. But when I trusted Christ, I realized that I personally trusted Christ. It's like the difference between looking at the airplane and looking at the maintenance log and looking, interviewing the pilots and saying, yep, I think that flight will make it safely. It's the difference between that and getting on the plane. Right? True faith is personal trust. So the question I have for you is, have you gotten on the airplane? Have you personally put your trust in Jesus Christ? Well, what are some applications? Number one, are you trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ and not in your good deeds or good intentions or in your religion? Are you really just trusting? Is it just his mercy? That's it, right? Here's the thing. Do you, would you say this? This is God's plan A. <laughs> and there is no what? There is no plan B. It's not faith in Christ plus this. It's not trusting in God plus that. It is, it is Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, do you believe that the gospel is the power of God to save anyone? Do you believe the gospel can save anyone, no matter how rotten they are as a sinner? Right? Or do you think somehow, well, he saved you because you were quite so bad. But, you know, that guy, he'll never save that guy. Right? Upon all, to all and upon all that believe. Right? Do you believe? I mean, think of Paul. <laughs> the last person in the world you would think would trust the Christ was Saul of Tarsus. And then finally, does your faith in Jesus Christ cause you to live in a way that glorifies God? Well, these are truths that are familiar to us, I trust. But are they truths that have sunk down into our souls and that really inform the way we think and the way we live? Father, thank you.